yeah, he can promise me Anne of Green Gables and lobster and potatoes and all of that, but the fact is that if I hear there's a hundred Canadians gathered together, I'm, I'm going to be there if I'm invited. Uh, my Canadian roots are deep, um, many, many generations. My parents both grew up in Quebec, my dad in Montreal, my mom in the eastern townships, and I've spent my whole life in the Toronto area. My wife is from the Hamilton area, so... If there's people in Canada who want to hear me talk, I'll always uh, make room for that. I just, I'm thrilled what the Lord's doing here in Canada, and we get a lot of, um, a lot of news out of the States. We see a lot of what the Lord's doing here, but God's at work in Canada. Uh, we just have a slightly smaller population, therefore slightly smaller work, but we're thrilled to see what God's doing, uh, what He's teaching, and how He's working here in our country. So... So Steve asked me to come and speak about holiness, and this is a conference about holiness, three days of talking about that, and there's at least two dimensions of holiness that I think we need to consider. There's the holiness that is an attribute of God, the holiness that is God, and then there's the holiness that is ours, the way we live out that holiness that God gives us. And so I wanted to open the conference just by drawing our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the God who is holy. Whatever we are going to do, whatever we are going to be, it's a derivative holiness, a holiness that flows out of God down to us. So let's just begin by looking to this God who is holy and allowing our, our minds and our hearts to fixate on him for a few minutes and then after that, the, the other guys will talk more about how we can then live in light of that holiness. So if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 6 with me. It's a familiar passage, and um, it's been a joy to spend some time studying it and to go mining it for its riches. And in that passage, I want you to meet a good man, a man named Isaiah, Isaiah son of Amos, a very good man who lived around about 700 years before Jesus was born. He's a kind of man who did all the right things. He went to the temple and he prayed and he offered his sacrifices and he obeyed the law and he read the scriptures and he fulfilled all of the religious obligations that were on him. He may well have been the best man. Maybe he was the most religious man in the entire nation or even in the entire world. Yet we see that God had something in store for this man. He was going to call Isaiah to serve as a prophet. A prophet is a man who, who speaks the words of God on behalf of God. And Isaiah would become God's spokesman. He would become God's statesman. He would stand before kings. He would stand before his countrymen. And he would say, here is what God says to you. He would speak the very words of God. He would speak words of judgment and words of blessing, words of comfort and words of curse. But not yet. Before God would have Isaiah serve as his prophet, he had something he needed to teach this man, something he needed to show him. He needed to show Isaiah that all of his goodness was not good enough. He was going to choose Isaiah as his prophet, not because of who Isaiah was, not because of his religion, but despite all of it. And this was a lesson that could come to Isaiah only by completely dismantling the man, only by completely taking him apart piece by piece. And so I want us to see from God's word today how, Isaiah, how God takes Isaiah apart, how he takes apart everything Isaiah thought he was and everything he thought he knew and everything Isaiah thought he had accomplished and then how God puts them all back together again. And I want God to take each one of us apart in much the same way, to take us apart piece by piece. Isaiah describes an experience, an encounter that completely, radically transforms him. And it's described and it's recorded in the Bible so that you and I and whoever wants to read God's Word can have a very similar experience, that same encounter and then we can be transformed in the same way. And then not just through this message, but through the entire conference, all because of what God teaches us in His Word. Do you believe that this is what God delights to do in His Word, to transform us? 
I think there are at least three kinds of people who may be here today, at least three kinds of people who need to hear from God in His Word. There's some here who may never have known God. You may have sat in church week after week after week, maybe even year after year. But all this time you've been trusting in your own efforts to bring your acceptance with God. You may even be a pastor here who all this time has been trusting in your own work instead of God's work. That's exactly where Isaiah was, a man who had done all the right things and was suddenly going to come to see that he did not have a holiness of his own. So this message then is for you, and I want you to listen today, and I want you to hear God call you to respond to his word. Then there are people here, of course, who have turned to the Lord, who have relied on God's offer of his free grace through Jesus Christ, but, but maybe your love has begun to grow cold. You've grown a little bit bored or a little bit complacent over the years. That seems to be something all of us can slip into. I want you to see God afresh and to allow this experience of God to to just rekindle your love for Him. He can do this, and He will do this if you can catch that glimpse of God's holiness, His utter holiness in His Word. Then there are people here who are loving the Lord and serving the Lord and on fire, just burning for love with Him. I want you to see God in His holiness And I want this to motivate you to live for him all the more, to grow all the more in love and service and devotion and evangelism and everything it is that God calls you to. But I can promise, with God's authority, I can promise this. You cannot listen to God's word. You cannot really listen to God's word and be unchanged. If you listen to God's word today and you listen to it as, Kevin, and as Mike bring it in the days to come, it will accomplish something in you. God promises us this. So let's read together from Isaiah chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each has six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, this experience of Isaiah takes place in the year that King Uzziah died, which we can measure around 740 years before Jesus is born. Uzziah ruled over the king of Judah, and he was a pretty good king. He was not one of those great kings who led the nation back to the war, but he did rule in such a way that over his reign he brought a time of peace and a time of prosperity and security and hope. But of course, his reign couldn't last forever, and after 52 years there on the throne, he died at last. And the year that a king dies is a year of uncertainty, a year of turbulence. So this now is a pivotal moment in the history of the nation. It's a year when a a new king could come who who would be, well, he's a king who could rule well, a king who would serve the Lord, continue to make that nation safe and prosperous. 
Or it could be a moment when a bad king could be appointed, a king who had turned that country away from the Lord altogether. So here at this time of instability, this time of questioning, Isaiah says, I saw. Isaiah receives a vision from God. Now this is more than a dream. This is more than just his imagination playing tricks on him. This is a vision that God gives him, an experience that he can see and he can hear and he can smell and he can feel it. And now with our Bible open before us, we can stand with Isaiah to see what he saw and we can hear what he hears. We can feel his awe. We can sense the terror he feels as he looks out on this amazing scene. It transformed him and it's meant to transform us as well. So I want to look at this vision Isaiah has, this experience under three headings. First, God wants to take you apart. Second, what God takes apart, God puts back together. And third, God's work demands a response. So first, God wants to take you apart. And as we read this account, we see this is exactly what he does to Isaiah. And he does it in a really unexpected way. God takes a hands-off approach. All he does here, all he does is offer Isaiah a display of himself. Which is to say, he gives Isaiah a display of his holiness. And at that glimpse of it, Isaiah is completely undone. To see God's holiness is to be transformed. Let's see this together. Isaiah says, he begins like this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So his eyes open in a vision, and he sees a room. He sees heaven's throne room, the place where God dwells, the place where God reigns. And this room is dominated by a great throne, a throne that is high and lifted up. It rises above everything around it. A throne is a demonstration of a king's authority. The king sits in the grand place. He sits above everyone else. This is a display of his sovereignty, a display of his power, his sovereignty, his right to rule, his right to judge. When the king is there on the throne, his will must be done. And so in a year of turbulence and uncertainty, Isaiah gets this reminder that there is another king there's a far greater king who rules through and in and behind every earthly ruler. He says, in the year that our king died, I saw the real king. I saw that true king who is on his throne, who is ruling over everything and everyone in every time. Well, Isaiah must be on his face by now bowed on the ground before this king. And from that position on the ground, he begins to raise his eyes just a little bit, and he sees the train of God's robe. The train of a robe, of course, that's the part that trails behind the robe. Just recently in Canada, we celebrated the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth. So she's been our queen now for 60 years. At her coronation in 1953, she wore a robe with a train that was almost six meters long. It was so long and so heavy, it took six people to follow behind her and to carry it. They had secret little handles in there so people could carry that robe, the train of that robe, so it wouldn't catch, it wouldn't snag, it wouldn't tear. And that robe, of course, the length of the robe symbolized the, the greatness of a nation and the greatness of its queen, its monarch. And so here Isaiah, he looks toward the throne and he sees God, he sees the train of God's robe. And this train is far longer than six meters long. This one extends through that entire throne room. It sweeps up and before and around that throne, around the king. The robe fills the whole room. So God is there high above Isaiah. He's ruling from a throne and his robe just flows down and around that room. It tells us he's a king who has strength and he has power and he has authority, and he has the right to rule. Isaiah now lifts his eyes just a little bit higher, and he sees that God is not alone in this room. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, 
and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Well, now he sees that this room is a busy place, and this king, like any king, he's surrounded by his servants, by the the creatures who attend to him. While God sits upon that throne, creatures called seraphim, they hover behind and above him. This is the only place in the Bible that we read about these creatures, these seraphim. The word means something like fiery one. They're fiery creatures. We don't really know a whole lot about them. Isaiah tries to describe them, but he can tell us only two things. He tells us about their wings, and he tells us about their voice. You know, God always designs his creatures to do exactly what he wants them to do. They're always perfectly equipped for the task that he's created them for. Well, God has created these seraphim for a very specific purpose. He's created them to be creatures who are there at his throne. They're closer to God than any other creature. So why then would he create these creatures with six wings? Well, one pair is for flying, for motion, so they're able to do whatever God tells them to do. But the other two sets of wings have an unusual purpose. One of the sets of wings is used to cover their faces. These are pure and sinless beings, and yet even they must cover their face. They must not gaze directly at the pure essence of God, even these creatures. That sight would be too much even for them. And then a final pair of wings is used to cover their feet. And usually in the Bible, when we hear feet, we think of creatureliness, the fact that these beings have been created. So these seraphim then, they cover their feet as a sign of their humility. They humbly acknowledge before God that they are created beings in the presence of the one who created them. Isaiah looks and he sees these seraphim there beside God, and he also hears them. As they hover there, they hover there waiting to do, to do whatever it is that God tells them to do. They speak, they shout, they sing to one another. Verse 3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Forever and with no end, these creatures express their overflowing and overpowering and overwhelming delight in God by calling out these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. In our English language, we've got all kinds of ways of adding emphasis to our words. If we want to emphasize how big something is, we might say it was really big. Or if it was even bigger than that, we might say it's really, really big. The Hebrew language does it a little bit differently. When Hebrews wants to emphasize something, it repeats it. The repetition gives it a kind of a punch. It gives it a kind of emphasis. So a very holy God is a God who is holy, holy. That doesn't mean he's holy plus holy as much as it means he's holy times holy. It, It magnifies God's holiness. It multiplies it. Yet we see that God is far more than that. Here we see the seraphim crying out that God is three times holy. He is holy, times holy, times holy. In all the Old Testament, there's only one adjective, one description of God that appears three times over, and it's this. Our God is a holy God. See, this word we use a lot, holy, holiness, what does it mean? Well, it means fundamentally that God is different from everything else that exists in all the universe. God is unique, and God is set apart. He is transcendent. Everything God is, and everything God has, and everything God does is saturated with this holiness. It flows out of His holiness. It is pure and good and perfect and holy. Whatever God is, His holiness is right at the very heart of it. So so God is a good God. His, His goodness is good because He's holy. God's justice is just because God is holy. God is unique, and God is perfectly pure. 
And this is what Isaiah hears from these creatures who call out to one another again and again. They praise God by declaring that he is holy, holy, holy. They praise him as well that his, his holiness overflows so that the whole earth is full of God's glory. God's glory is just his holiness put on display. This is why God created the world so that glory could fill it up so he could display his glory, not just in the throne room of heaven, but here among us as well. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now we learn that Isaiah has been seeing all of this through a haze of smoke. There's smoke billowing throughout this throne room. The smoke veils the scene a little bit. It allows glimpses. He can see through it, but he can't get a pure sight of God. He must be near to the door of this throne room because he says that as these creatures speak, the thresholds of the door, the doorposts are trembling. They shake. He feels their voices like an earthquake. You know what it's like when a plane flies overhead and the ground rumbles beneath you. You can hear that plane, but you can feel it as well. These are powerful creatures who are causing this whole building to quake. This is the sound of praise in God's throne room. This is the sound of creatures who are ever praising their God. This is a holy scene from a holy place. Are you grateful that God gives us this glimpse, this glimpse into his throne room? God doesn't have to give us this, yet he gives us this view of him in his holy place. Isaiah gets that. He realizes that he's standing on holy ground here. And through Isaiah, through his description, through the Bible, we're standing on holy ground as well. Isaiah sees the place where God rules. He sees these creatures worshiping God. He sees glimpses of God himself. And all the while, the smoke is billowing and the building is shaking. But of course, that's not all that's quaking here in the room. There's something here that's shaking even more than the doorpost, and it's Isaiah himself. Isaiah takes in this scene before him. He sees God in his glory, and then suddenly he becomes aware of himself. He comes to his senses, and he has this sudden, terrible, sickening realization After just one look at God, Isaiah, this good and moral religious man, comes to see that he is not good at all. He has seen God for the very first time. And on that basis, he realizes he's now seen himself for the very first time. He sees God for who God is, and now he sees Isaiah for who Isaiah is. And he he understands now this is not a pretty sight. The best of men here. Isaiah, the best of men, is driven to the utter depths of despair when he catches just one sideways glance of the holiness of God. For a brief moment, just a brief moment, God pulls back the curtain. He unveils just this small part of his essence. And Isaiah is completely overwhelmed. Isaiah is taken to pieces. Isaiah despairs of life itself. This is what God's holiness does. Just a couple days ago, my six-year-old daughter managed to say, holy macaroni. I don't know where she learned it. God's holiness undoes us. (laughs) I don't know how we can use these words, holy macaroni, as if it's meaningful. God's holiness transforms, it undoes, it convicts. There's only one thing that Isaiah can do. Only one thing he can do at this time in this place. In terror and in despair, he cries out, verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He cries out, woe is me. Woe is a 
powerful word. It's a meaningful word. It's a word that refers to judgment, a word that refers to doom, to curse. When God's prophets declared words of judgment to Israel, they would use this word, woe. When they declared woe to the nation of Israel, they declared this nation is falling under God's curse. They're saying, God will judge this nation. You are in deep, deep trouble before the Lord. You remember Jesus going to the religious hypocrites of his day, the religious leaders, and saying to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He was pronouncing doom. He was pronouncing hell upon them. Woe is the very opposite of that great word, blessed. Blessed are you. You will experience God's favor. Woe to you. You will experience God's disfavor. Blessed are you. God is inclined towards you. Woe to you. God is disinclined towards you. God is opposed to you. Isaiah sees God here in his utter holiness. He sees himself now in his utter unholiness. And he knows without any shadow of doubt that he himself is under the judgment and under the curse of God. This gaze at God's holiness has exposed to him one thing more than any other. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah has worshipped God from his youngest days. He's read the law and he's said the prayers and he's performed all the rituals. He's a good man. He's never murdered. He's never bowed down before a foreign God. He's never committed adultery. Yet God's holiness has exposed a major, major problem. He has unclean lips. Maybe it's a funny thing to say, but his, unclean, his, his lips are unclean because they just express what is in his heart. He comes to see that his heart is impure so that the words that come out of his mouth, whatever they are, they are impure. He, he realizes now what Jesus would say so much later. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. The lips, the words we speak, they simply expose the heart. They simply reveal what is in the heart. Isaiah sees that his lips are filthy because his heart is filthy. And not only that, but he lives in the middle of a nation of people who are just like he is. All this time, he's been delusional. In the past, he's been comparing himself to other people. He's looked at the guy beside him and, and been able to pridefully say, yeah, I'm better off than that guy. He may have been the, the holiest, the most upright, the most put-together man in this entire nation, maybe in the entire world. But now he sees he's been measuring himself by the wrong standard. Now he stands in the presence of God, he compares himself to God, and he realizes that he is totally, he is completely defiled by sin. And so, in hopelessness and in despair, he cries out, Woe is me. He cries out, I will be judged by God. I will be cursed by God. And this is exactly, exactly what I deserve. These here, these here are the purest and the most heartfelt words he's ever uttered in his whole life. This is, these are the first words of pure worship he's ever uttered in his life. Do you see what this glimpse of God has done to Isaiah? All God did was let Isaiah see him for just a moment through the haze of smoke. And that was enough. That was more than enough. Our Bibles have Isaiah crying out, I am lost. But I kind of like the way the older translations say it. I am undone. That word means something like I've been pulled to pieces. I've been destroyed. I'm undone. I'm discombobulated. I'm disintegrated. God has just pulled him apart. And he's done it just by letting Isaiah see his holiness. 
And these words were recorded by God so that you and I could have the same experience. In this text, in these words, we see God. Isaiah says, My eyes have seen the King. They've seen the Lord of hosts. And now, through God's Word, you've seen the King. Through God's Word, the Bible, you've seen His holiness. You've seen Him. You've seen Him in in holiness. You've seen Him in, in glory. What will you do? How will you react? All you can do is react. You can't unsee him now. You can't go back half an hour in time and and unsee him. You need to respond to God as he reveals himself in his word. And so do you cry out in your heart like Isaiah, woe is me. Will you admit what is so clear here in the pages of God's word and what's so clear in your own life that you too are unclean, that you are an unholy person who stands before a holy God, that your mouth is unclean because your heart is unclean. Do you see and understand and acknowledge that you deserve that judgment? You deserve that curse. This was a brand new concept to Isaiah. This was a whole new realization for him. But in that glaring light of God's holiness, he simply couldn't deny it. I hope God is pulling you apart, just like he pulled Isaiah his part. Woe is me, for I am lost, I am pulled to pieces. If that's the case, then God has you exactly where he wants you. So you can take heart and you can keep listening. There is hope. And when you think about it, the story could end here, right? This could be the end of the story of Isaiah. God would be just to allow the story to end here. Isaiah understands his sin. Isaiah despairs of life himself. And God casts him out of his presence forever and ever. Justice is done. The end. But the story doesn't end here. God is not finished. He will will do more than just allow Isaiah to see him. He will do more than just pull Isaiah apart, pull him into pieces. He will meet Isaiah right there in the middle of that despair. And he will put him back together. And this is the second thing we need to see. What God takes apart, God then puts together. And so Isaiah is on his face before God. Isaiah is despairing of life itself. Isaiah is accepting that curse and judgment he deserves. Notice what he doesn't do here. Isaiah doesn't try to clean himself up. He doesn't try and scrub his lips clean. He doesn't grab a knife and cut them off. He doesn't promise to try to do better next time. Just just give me one more chance and I promise this time I'll be holy. He does he does nothing. He knows that there is nothing he can do. He has been given a death sentence. He knows he's guilty and he knows there is not one thing in the entire world that he can do to make this right. If he is to avoid his death sentence, there will have to be a solution that comes from outside himself. He knows that solution can't come from within, so if there is one, it will have to come from somewhere out there. Well, this God who is holy, 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 is also a good and a kind and a merciful and a loving God. He is a God who will now take the initiative to save this person he loves. This person that he has called to himself. For the first time in his entire life, Isaiah has become aware of a great need that he has. What does he need? He needs to be holy. But he isn't holy. He's tried all of those rites and rituals, but still he is unclean. He has tried it all, but still he has unclean lips because he has an unclean heart. And I think all of us can identify with this um, on some level. 
Most of us tried so many different things to clean ourselves up. We became aware of our unholiness, aware of our sin, aware of our guilty conscience, and we tried so hard to deal with it ourselves. We tried penance, and we tried sacraments, and we tried confession, and we tried following the law. I swear I will never do it again. Just give me one more chance. That was the last time. I won't ever do it again. And then we did it again. We've tried so hard to be good, and we just couldn't do it. And so we came to the end of ourselves, and we were left in utter despair. Well, Isaiah, he's come to the end of himself here. He now has a right assessment of his condition. And he has a right assessment of God's character. God has taken him apart so we can put him back together. And God will give him hope by giving him holiness. So let's see how God puts him back together. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So one of these seraphs who's there beside the Lord, behind the Lord, he receives a command from God, and suddenly he jumps into action. He flies from the side of God over there to the altar that is there in the throne room. And with tongs, he takes a coal from the fire. Even this creature can't touch that coal by himself. He needs to use tongs because it's a holy thing, a holy object that's been set apart for God's specific purposes. So he takes those tongs and he selects one white-hot coal and now he moves toward Isaiah. Can you see Isaiah's eyes grow wide with fear as this creature approaches him with this burning coal held out in front of him? Verse 7, And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This coal, this one white-hot coal, is pressed against Isaiah's lips. There is the terror, and there is the searing of flesh, and then there is hope. Then there is new life. This holy coal... It meets Isaiah's filthy mouth, but it doesn't hurt him. Instead, it heals him. It does that very thing that Isaiah knew he could never, ever, ever do for himself. It has made him clean. In a moment, the God who took Isaiah apart has suddenly put him back together. The seraph speaks. He says, this coal has accomplished something miraculous. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God has acted. God has done a miracle. In a moment, with a single act, without a single action on Isaiah's part, God has taken away the guilt of Isaiah's sin. He's taken away that great debt of holiness that Isaiah owes to God. And the seraph assures him that great debt of sin has been canceled. It's been covered by someone else. It's all gone. You are now free. And we see that God gives to Isaiah a holiness that is not his own. It's a holiness that comes from outside of Isaiah. This is God's own holiness given to an unholy man. And that is what we know as grace. That is God giving what is not deserved. This is a holiness that God, that Jesus Christ would win for Isaiah. It was almost 700 years before Jesus would live and die, but already the merits of what Christ would accomplish were being applied to this man. This coal, of course, we understand it in the light of redemptive history. We understand it as a symbol of the cross, symbolic of all that Christ would accomplish there. Much later in the Gospel of John, John quotes Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Whose glory did he see? Who did he speak of? He saw the glory of Jesus Christ. When Isaiah saw God there in the throne room, when he looked up and saw God sitting upon the throne, it was God the Son. He saw it was our Savior before he came to earth. It was our Savior pre-incarnate. 
he saw the holiness of God in God the Son. And in the presence of the one who had come, in the presence of the one who would live a perfect life and die that atoning death, a seraph takes a coal from the altar. Isaiah may not have known who, exactly who that altar was pointing to, exactly what it meant, but he would have known that, it under, that the altar symbolized one great fact, that God saves sinners. With the coal taken from that altar, he burns away Isaiah's sin. He burns away Isaiah's guilt. And what a rich picture here of salvation in Christ. A picture of the salvation that Christ would accomplish for Isaiah and for each one of us. Do you see the great unity of Scripture here? That from the beginning of the Scripture to the end, it all points to Jesus Christ. That we're players in this great drama of redemption of God reconciling a people to himself through his Son. Of course, God could not just ignore Isaiah's unclean lips and unclean heart. He is a holy God, which means he is a just God. That's something uh, I'll talk about next time I'm up here. He's a God who must see that justice is done. Our sin demands punishment. It demands consequence. So already here, God is looking to the future. He's looking to what Christ would accomplish on behalf of unclean and impure, sinful, sin-stained people like you and like me and Isaiah. And that Sarah says, your sin has been atoned for. Christ took Isaiah's sin upon himself. He took his guilt upon himself and he suffered for it and God's justice was satisfied. Christ took Isaiah's sin upon himself and he exchanged it for his own holiness. Christ was made to be sin so Isaiah could be made holy. This is the great exchange of the gospel. And now as Christians, we have the great privilege and the great responsibility of invoking all the authority given to us in, in this book, in the Bible, and, and commanding sinners to turn to Christ, telling them to admit, telling them to cry out, I am unclean. God, forgive me and make me clean. And he will. He will forgive. He will take away all the guilt of sin. And he will assure that it has been covered through his son. It has been dealt with. It has been taken away as far as east is from west, all because of what Christ has accomplished. If you're one of those Christians who's grown tired of obeying God, tired of praying, tired of the hard, hard labor of growing in holiness, allow this vision of God to just resound in your heart and your mind. God is so much bigger. He's so much better, so much holier than you've been making him out to be. Too many people who claim to be Christians, they worship a God who contains no hint, no shred of this holiness. Their God is far, far too small. I don't blame them. I wouldn't worship that God either. How could you? He's a far too human God. But the God who reveals himself in the Bible is a God who is worthy of our worship, a God who is holy, a God who is kind, a God who is worth living for. He's a God who is worth dying for. He's a God who is utterly set apart, utterly unique, utterly holy. Allow him to rekindle that love you once had. You see this vision of God high and lifted up, and remember when he first said to you, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Do you remember that day that you found that freedom from your sin? And believe that what you need when, what you need when you've grown dead to grace is more grace. Ask God. He will give you that grace. Well, we've seen that God wants to take you apart as he took Isaiah apart. We've seen that what God takes apart, God puts back together. And now just briefly, the third part to this story. When God works, 
When God works in our lives, we now need to respond. God has taken Isaiah apart and put him back together, and that work, that kind of work, demands a response from this man. We've seen Isaiah speak, and we've seen the seraph speak. But now God himself opens his mouth and asks a question. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? God's work is not complete. He has worked in Isaiah, but the rest of the nation, the rest of the world awaits. The whole history of what God will accomplish in this world still waits. This nation is waiting for a man who will speak with authority, who will speak with the authority of someone who has seen this God, who has known this God as the holy, holy, holy God, someone who has met this God and been completely transformed by him. And so booming out into this throne room, now comes this question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will serve as my messenger? Who will carry my words beyond this throne room and out there into all the earth? Well, you know that if God had asked that question from the throne room the day before, on the other side of this experience, if God the day before had asked someone to do this work, who can doubt that Isaiah would have stood up and said, oh, choose me. I'll do it. I'm a good and a holy man. I ought to be the one who goes for you. And you know what? The people around him probably would have agreed with his assessment. But God would not have. Now God has done his work in this man. Isaiah has received this infinite measure of grace And now he just longs to express gratitude to God for what God has done. This grace has taken Isaiah from cursed to blessed, from filthy to clean, from death to life, and now his heart just overflows with joy and love and gratitude. And so Isaiah hears himself speak. We all hear him speak. He says, here am I, send me. The greatest humility Now with humility, the day before it would have been pride, but now in humility he speaks and said, I am available to you. I am willing to serve you. I have been made clean, and so I long to serve you. What grace it would be if you would send me to be your messenger. And God says to him, go. God has radically saved and radically transformed this man Now he will send him out as his envoy, as his messenger. Let's see three things together, and then I'll close. First, see God's goodness in revealing his holiness to us. Do you see that here? Do you see God's goodness in revealing himself as holy? God doesn't reveal himself to us in order to destroy us, but in order to bless us. In love, he's given you a glimpse of his holiness today. Now respond. If you are not yet a Christian, you need to respond by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only right response to seeing him. If you are a Christian, the right response is worship. Those seraphim that stand by God, they see him as holy and they respond appropriately forever and ever and ever they praise God for being, just for being who he is. You simply can't see God for who he is and be unmoved and be unchanged. God reveals himself to you through his word so that you will worship him. He wants you to worship him in all of life to make every moment a moment of worship in which you live under the direction and under the sovereignty of this holy God. Second, see that God is sovereign. God reigns from his throne room over all the affairs of men. He is the one who initiates here. He is the one who moves. Did you notice Isaiah didn't ask for, Isaiah didn't even expect this encounter. He had no idea of his condition until God took action to make him aware of it. That is grace. 
And then again, once Isaiah has seen his condition, there's nothing he can do. All Isaiah can do is cry out of what is true, that he deserves to be cursed. And again, again, it's God who must move. God who does move to save the one that he loves. That is grace. God takes him apart, and then God puts him together, and all of this for the good of Isaiah and the glory of God. Third, finally, the question God asks Isaiah is the question he asks each one of us. You know what I love about God's question and then Isaiah's response? God doesn't even tell Isaiah what the job is. Did you notice that? He doesn't give him a job description and say, well, here are the five things that are part of this description. Does does this fit? Are we a good match here? Do you have time for any of this? All he does is say, well, now, who's available to serve me? And Isaiah, who's the recipient of all this grace, he stands up and says, here am I. I will do it. It doesn't matter what it is. Isaiah knows that God is holy. Now, now he understands that God is holy. He knows God is good. And he knows that whatever God asks him to do, it will be good. And it will bring glory to this great and this holy God. And Isaiah wants nothing more, nothing more than this. And that question becomes our question. God's voice booms out into this room, right here, right now, and says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God asks simply, who is available to serve me? Who has seen me as holy? Who has been transformed? And who is now ready to serve me? And how about you? Are you willing to say, here am I. Send me. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter what. It doesn't matter what it costs me. I have seen your holiness. I have received your grace. And I will do whatever, whatever it is that will bring glory to you here am I? Amen. Amen. Can I pray for us? Our Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself as holy. In your kindness, you reveal yourself to us in this way so we can properly understand who you are and now how we are to live in light of that. We pray that each one of us here would reflect on the fact that you are holy, and just the great extent of your holiness, and that you would move our hearts, you would move our minds, you would, you would move our will so that we can embrace you, so that each one of us can just give ourselves, as Isaiah did, say, I've seen you as holy, use me, send me, do whatever it is you need me to do, I will do it in gratitude for your glory. Thank you for your goodness, your goodness to us in giving us your word. Won't you continue to speak to us through your word in Christ's name? Amen. Amen.